Hey guys, Mubarak Shah, CPA here, M&A Advisor, here to talk to you guys about the general acquisition timeline. All right, how long does it take to actually close on a deal? What are the steps involved? And so if you haven't done this before, this should take you through the A to Z, all the different pieces of actually buying a business, or if you're about to get your business ready for sale, it's also something that you'll want to know and keep in the back of your mind or understand how the process actually goes because uh just like how buying a house buying a car you know there's multiple steps involved and even when you're excited and wanting to move things forward um, as you can imagine a business is obviously much more complex and has a lot of different moving parts and so obviously the size of the business will determine certain factors as to when an acquisition can occur but in this episode i'm going to be talking mainly about a business probably say from about you know a million in valuation or purchase price all the way up to like 20 to 30 million right so the sweet spot for searchers for um, people uh, independent sponsors people buying their first acquisition uh, a platform company things of that nature so I'll be talking about both the private equity world how they see it and as well as kind of individual searchers how they and how yourself can get involved if you're interested um, so essentially, you know, on the private equity side, if you have, uh, if you're on that level, you know, usually that's kind of more on the purchase price, twenty million and above, or so, or five to ten million in EBIT or higher. But sometimes, you know, sellers bring on an investment bank, and they are essentially just, uh, you know, a lot of times investment banks handle sell side deals, and what they're doing is they're the bankers are putting together a teaser or a one pager, and these are sent out to private equity players. So in the same way that if you're trying to buy a business via a business broker or so, you might have uh, a one pager, some sort of teaser, some sort of preliminary information that contains a brief description of the business, its products and service offerings, financial highlights. Um, you know, it's called a teaser because it doesn't disclose the name of the seller. And the objective is to keep the seller's identity confidential in the beginning. All right. So it's purely about, hey, is this like something you're interested in? Is this even in your wheelhouse? Um, and so you'll get this initially, right? And you kind of see it also if you're ever on biz buy sell or any of these kind of online marketplaces to buy a business, you'll see some information where they just, you know, they don't necessarily tell you the, the um, name of the company, but they'll tell you the county, the type of business, where it's located, asking price, gross revenues, a business description, um, something about the real estate, the facilities, you know, they'll give you some headliners to see whether or not it's, um, you know, to kind of tease you and see if it's something of interest to you and your team, right? So after that, the next step is essentially getting the NDA signed, all right? So this is super important. Um, it's going to be probably the first step of any transaction timeline. Sometimes you might not get any information until the NDA is signed, but overall NDA stands for non-disclosure agreement and it restricts the use of confidential information that will be part of the SIM uh, that you'll get next uh, from being used to solicit clients, poach employees, or develop business strategies around it, right? So the NDA is just a document. It's pretty standard. It's pretty templated. A lot of lawyers will have it. You can probably look it up online. And an exchange between a prospective buyer and seller in the initial stages of an M&A transaction, right? So the document is exchanged after the buyer shows interest in a company, after usually looking at the teaser or so. And the objective of the, of the NDA is to just make sure that the party receiving the confidential information doesn't use that against the target company for its own benefit. So, you know, it's required 
in a lot of different cases, you might have signed an NDA maybe for work, for other purposes, but um, it, it's a pretty standard boilerplate type of document that is used. And so then once that's signed, now the both parties are kind of more comfortable with sharing more information. And so then, uh, again, if you're, if you're in the private equity world, then the SIM, which is the Confidential Information Memorandum, or the data room, or the kind of more of the information will flow then, right? Because now you're bound to this um, NDA, and you're not going to share the information or use it for malicious purposes. And so now once the NDA is exchanged, then the bankers will share the complete information about the company. So you'll get the identity of the company, an investment thesis, overview. You know, these are generally anywhere from 20 all the way up to 100 pages of information about the entire market, the company, products and service offerings, revenue profile, uh, projections, financials, capital structure. And basically the idea of the SIM and the importance of it is that the potential acquirer can look at the company and decide whether they're willing to buy it or not. So if you ever wondered why investment banks get paid so much or why they make so much money, it's because they're putting together this whole type of quote-unquote brochure and detailed information about the company um, and so they get paid from the sell side occasionally, or sometimes you can actually, uh, you know, uh, engage buy side M&A firms or investment banks. But typically they're for the most part on the sell side and they'll be the ones preparing all this information, you know, and that's a lot of the times the difference between working with a business broker or, you know, uh, just requesting information from a company online, like a biz buy sell biz quest, because those companies won't really like they it's just dependent upon the seller or the owner right so they're not investment bankers or you know unless the owner actually had a background in it but in general they might not have such an organized amount of information so that's why investment banks what they do is they put all that information together on behalf of the company so that way any buyers have everything at their disposal uh, in the sim or in the data room and usually a combination of the two to have all the details that they need in order to actually decide to move forward with the deal or not all right. So then what happens is that you can actually have a call with the management team or the owner. Right. So if when private equity players start looking at the sim, they usually come into a situation where, hey, you want certain clarifications about the company's capabilities or you're seeing whether something in the sim makes sense or it fits. And so basically, if you're in a private equity firm, the senior management gets into a call with the management team of the seller. If you're a searcher or kind of dealing with the business broker, this is usually around the time where they'll line up the call between the buyer and the seller. And you can kind of start talking through some of the different points, um, learning more about the business and really just seeing if there's alignment, right? So this is, you've signed the NDA, you've gotten the SIM or the data room, and now you're finally able to kind of start talking with the seller. And usually at this point, there's also kind of an interest in the financial model and valuation because now what's happening is you're talking to the seller as long as the information and what you're seeing is what you're interested in. Then obviously the only thing that you need to do at that point is structure the deal, right? And an important part of structuring the deal outside of deciding, you know, whether it's an asset or stock deal, which we talk about in other episodes, but um, in general, figuring out, okay, if you want to do a full acquisition of the company or is the company uh, open or the seller, is the, are they open to rolling equity over? Meaning, um, you know, will they hold on to a small piece of the company post-acquisition, which is usually beneficial because as a buyer, A, that means if the seller is willing to stay on, then, you know, you can kind of trust that they have a little bit more 
uh, obviously you're going to do your due diligence and stuff. But overall, if, if, if the seller is not going to just disappear right after the close of the transaction, you can have a little bit more comfort level that, you know, what they're talking about and that the company is sound and uh, that especially if they're willing to roll over equity, what that means is that they do believe that they can get what a lot of people in this industry call like the second bite of the apple, meaning there's still value in the company, there's still growth. And maybe the owner is just wanting to retire, wanting to take some chips off the table, uh, liquidate some and make some money. But uh, they believe there's a future in the company and that's why they're actually willing to take a lower purchase price now and keep some equity in the company, thereby rolling it over. Right, That's why it's called rollover equity or seller's equity. And that makes it easier for you as a buyer, not only from an alignment standpoint of, hey, listen, you don't have to like fully figure out all the intricacies of the business right after close because you'll have the owner still stick around. Uh, but then it also reduces the purchase price by whatever percentage you know they're willing to hold on to. So uh, the valuation is the key point to do though because that's the purchase price. And so typically it's done by, you know, based on a DCF model, which is a discounted cash flow model. Um, you look at the trading, you look at uh, transaction comparables, and the valuation really is the critical part because then what happens is you put this together, you you know, you figure out the deal structure, you talk to the seller, and this all comes together in what's called either an IOI, which is an inquiry of interest, uh, or like an LOI, a letter of intent. Um, and those are basically nine non-binding offers, but it's the formal offer that the buyer makes or this private equity firm makes to the seller. And it expresses the interest of the firm in acquiring the business of the seller by paying a certain valuation. So, you know, there's a whole, we're probably going to do a whole episode on letter of intents and LOIs. And um, they're usually a couple pages long. You know, sometimes we've seen buyers try to articulate why they have an interest in the company give a little bit of a background about themselves, maybe discuss any support letters or talk about their investors or why their industry thesis aligns with the seller and what their company is all about. Um, but it'll basically line out the path forward, right? So the letter of intent or uh, sometimes it's called expression of interest or IOI. Um, it's basically, you know, it includes what you're willing to pay for the company, uh, the requirements of the due diligence. So Afterwards, you'll have a kind of solidified period of due diligence where you are in lock. Usually it's an exclusivity, um, meaning that you are going to be focused on looking at the financials of the company and, and, and everything about the company and that the seller isn't going to go around and shop around your offer. Right. So it gives you a certain timeline of, of exclusivity where it's just you and the seller and no one else can kind of get involved. Right. So, for example, investment bankers, what they do is they'll have their whole goal is to run an auction process, right? And so that's why private equity ends up being a little bit higher level, more difficult because there's more buyers. It's a more formal setting. And the investment banker's job on the sell side is to try and get the highest purchase price possible for the selling company. And so what they'll do is they'll vet a lot of different buyers. They'll take in what's called the IOIs, so the indications of interest. And then they'll at the end of the day, there'll only be one LOI that goes, that goes forward based upon what the seller accepts. And that kills all the other potential players or competitors that are evaluating the company and just locks you in one-on-one -on -one buyer and seller. And so usually we see those last anywhere from 60 days of exclusivity to 120 days. Um, that's generally the time frame. I guess it can go either ways, but 
that's the average from you know hundreds of deals that we've kind of witnessed and so the um again the letter of intent it's pretty important it's very important actually and, and, it, and it's key part of kind of how the relationship and the transaction is going to go forward so obviously some things can change but it's basically lining up you as the buyer your type of the transaction structure you want the approvals needed the type of transition support you're looking for and all of that right but it is non-binding for both of the parties so that is something to note so um that's something that's usually put out there and some of these processes can change right like for example the IOI when it's an investment banking type of auction what happens is that there's you know an IOI and then the data room access is granted and the in-person meeting with management occurs right so it's another layer of due diligence depending on how big the company is or how the valuation of the company stands and then you get to the LOI right so that's generally what you'll see depending on how big of the company it is that you're dealing with um, and so once the LOI is signed though right then you have exclusivity and you're one-on-one -on -one buyer and seller. And this is when you start engaging all of the third-party resources and deal team that you need. So you're going to go get your uh, accounting firm to run your quality of earnings report, right? That is a prepared by an independent third-party firm. Uh, the analysis is done on all of the revenue. Basically, you know, getting, it's almost like a miniature audit. But basically what you're trying to see is, okay, what is the type of, it's not a full audit, but you're basically verifying all of the financials of the company. So they'll do like a cash deposits to revenue reconciliation, payroll reasonableness. And basically, they'll do the whole analysis for you on what they believe the adjusted EBITDA ends up being. Right. Because a lot of the times what you're probably going to dictate your valuation on has to do with something about um, what where EBITDA stands. Right. And it's going to be a multiple of EBITDA. And so. A lot of times you have to do an analysis of the cost to understand the actual, you know, future run rate of the business from a revenue standpoint, you know, from the cost standpoint as like, was was there some non-recurring costs and one-time costs that need to be added back to EBITDA or is there future expenses or issues that are going to come up that, you know, EBITDA should be reduced. So all of that is what the financial, you know, the either the quality of earnings firm handles and uh, why you kind of need that. And then depending on the type of company you're dealing with, you know, typically you as the buyer, you'll be doing your customer diligence, your business diligence, maybe talking to the employees if the seller permits it, um, talking to customers, definitely understanding the value proposition of the business in the marketplace. Um, and then you'll have your lawyers doing all of the kind of legal diligence, making sure there's no skeletons in the closet that the company has and making sure that you're acquiring depending on whether it's a stock sale or an asset sale, you know, a, a reliable business that's not going to give you any issues. And so this is what's going on during that exclusivity period, that predetermined 60, 90, 120 days or so uh, period where you're l l running up to the close. Hopefully everything looks like it's going positively. And depending on whether it's a stock deal or an asset deal, your lawyers are now drafting up the purchase agreement, right? So you might have heard of the acronyms or seen it around SPA is a share purchase agreement for equity deals. APAs are asset purchase agreements for asset deals. Um, and that's a whole nother discussion as well for us to have. And I've had future, uh, prior episodes on that and probably will discuss it again in the future. But, you know, depending on whether you're on the buy, buyer side or seller side, you're going to want to try to push for um, a different type because of tax consequences and liability consequences. Um, but generally speaking, by the end of the, that period of exclusivity, 
you should, as long as everything continues to check out and there's no red flags and diligence, uh, you should be able to get to that purchase agreement, which is the official closing date is determined, the closing conditions, and basically, you know, the wires are scheduled. And fortunately, at, at this point, if everything has continued to go smoothly, then you finally close the transaction. So that is kind of the full timeline and kind of what happens. And this can end up taking anywhere from three months on the super fast end all the way up to a year to two years. Um, on average, you know, the bigger the deal, the longer it's going to take. Uh, but on average, you know, we see deals in the valuation, say, of enterprise value, say, $3 million to $25 million end up taking about four months or so, four to six months, right? Four months or three to four months ends up being like the actual exclusivity period. So post LOI. Uh, but then a lot of times there's a lot of work that you're doing as a searcher or as an acquirer pre LOI to vet the deals, find the deals. And, you know, the common statistic in the industry is that it takes about three LOIs to have a closed deal. And generally speaking, that's because a lot of the times, or not a lot of the times, but some of the times you'll definitely run into a situation where, okay, as you're going through the diligence, the company's financials aren't as rosy as they may have made it look like, or, you know, the, the marketplace or the value proposition that got you interested in the first place isn't exactly right. Um, and so you might have, you might want to back out. The seller sometimes gets cold feet and realizes that, hey, uh, maybe they just want to continue running their business. So, on average, just in your head, try to calculate that. Statistically, it seems like about every three LOIs would lead to one closed deal. Um, and so you should just kind of prepare for that uh, as you're working through this process. So hopefully that was a good overview. As always, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to us. You can text us at 516-417-4941, or you can email us at the uh, email in the description. Uh, but yeah, make these content make this content for you guys. So definitely let me know. Uh, if you enjoy or what other topics are of interest and uh, we'll get that going. But see you guys next time. Take care.